Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Thanks for our Sports Network listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. Kevin Smith with you to talk about some of the goings-on as the NFL reaches its midway point. We are now nine weeks in the books out of this 18-week season. That still feels feels odd for me to say that. The 18-week season, 17 games and a bye. And we're at the halfway point, and it's been a fascinating season so far. An unpredictable season, a season with a lot of surprises. And some narratives I, I think that people did not expect. And in the second half of the show, we're going to get into that a little bit. Give out some awards, not necessarily the standard awards like half-season MVP and things along those lines. Maybe some some more obscure awards that you might not think about as much. And really just sort of make some projections about the second half of the season. What are we going to see? What might we expect as we, as the weather starts to get a little bit cold? I'm looking out the window right now, and I can see all the leaves on my lawn that I need to rake up, and that's a clear sign that we're we're turning. And when we turn and we get into that second half of the season, and the weather changes, the league tends to change as well. So, what might we expect to see in the second half? We're going to talk about all that on the backside of this show, on on the flip side after the break. But in the first half, as we often do, we will talk about a a player, right, who wore the number that marries up with the episode of the call sheet that this is, and this is episode number 30. And really, I'm going to use this as an excuse to talk about maybe my favorite scheme in all of football. So if you'll geek out with me on that, that would be wonderful. I would love it if you would go down that road with me and geek out on the inside zone scheme. And how will we get to the inside zone scheme? We're going to get to it by honoring, because again, this is episode number 30, a famous NFL player who wore number 30, and that player is one Terrell Davis, the Hall of Fame running back from the Denver Broncos. It's interesting that we say Hall of Fame running back because Terrell Davis didn't play that long in the league. He really, he really, he had a he had a four-year stretch out of the gate, his rookie season where he just he gained just over a thousand yards. And then the next three years after that, from 1996 to 1998, when Terrell Davis put up the most prolific three-year stretch of any running back in league history, over the, those three years, he gained 5,296 yards. That included a 2,000-yard season in 1998. And in two of those three seasons, the Broncos won the Super Bowl. In the dying days of John Elway's career, 
And Davis was really the focal point of that offense. It was That was no longer really a John Elway engineered offense as it had been in the 1980s and early 90s. Really, Denver won those two Super Bowls on the backs of their prolific rushing game. And Terrell Davis was the focal point of it. He was not a huge back, 5'11", 210 pounds. But he was a tremendous inside runner. And he, again, had that prolific three-year stretch where he gained more yards in a three-year period than any back in history. And the scheme that really catapulted Terrell Davis to greatness, the scheme he was just so good at mastering, was the inside zone scheme. And, And that was a scheme that really allowed the back to find a hole and and sort of make one cut and go, right? The rule of, of an inside zone runner or of a back and inside zone scheme has always been, you know, be slow to the hole and fast through it. And we're going to talk about why that is, man. So if you go down the road with me, let's, let's do a history lesson real quick. I'm a history teacher. I've been a history teacher for 30 years in addition to being a football coach for over that time. And I love stories, man. I, I love the origins of things. I like to know you know, how do we get here? How do we how do we get to a certain point, whether it's in our the history of our country, the evolution of mankind, the origins of a system, whether that system be something as intricate as capitalism or Christianity or or any sort of broad system that is prevalent in the world today or obviously in the world of football, some of the schemes that dominate the modern game. And, and there is no, no scheme in offensive football more prevalent in the league than the inside zone scheme, or if I broaden that a little bit, the zone run game. The zone run game is something that all 32 NFL teams use. And it's really interesting as to how they got there. So to try to to try to figure that out or, or to or to tell that story, let's go way back. Let's back up all the way into the 1930s, 1940s, 50s, etc. In the early stages of football, where in those stages there were really just two schemes that all teams utilized to run the football. There was a wedge scheme and there was a man scheme. And the wedge scheme was just that, right? Where you had all your offensive linemen. And sometimes because teams didn't feature wide receivers back then, sometimes you had as many as eight offensive linemen piled up across the ball. ball. And the idea was for them to form a wedge, whereby each lineman would step inside to the hip of the lineman adjacent to them. And in that fashion, they would simply form what looked like a, a moving wedge, a moving, a, a moving sort of block of bodies that was designed to prevent any kind of penetration and simply push a defense forward in a way that would allow a, a running back or a quarterback in the old single wing days, they snapped the ball directly to the quarterback to simply tuck in behind it and push the pile for three or four yards. And in that fashion, the offense would proceed down the field, hoping of course, to again, not give up any penetration and just be able to bulldoze its way down the field. And, and eventually when the defense piled everybody up inside, they'd have some sort of counter or end run, where they would try to trick the defense into thinking the ball was going inside and somebody would escape outside. If you didn't have that scheme, you had a man scheme. And a man scheme was exactly what that sounds like, right? Every lineman up front was prescribed a a defender to block. And you blocked that defender. You blocked the adjacent defensive lineman. If you didn't have an adjacent defensive lineman, you went up and you blocked the linebacker. 
And so wedge schemes and man schemes, those were, those were, that was it. That was, that was the run offense of the early stages of, of both college and professional football. So when did it start to change? It's hard to pinpoint, right? You talk to a bunch of different coaches and you, and you look at like the origins of, of the evolution of these schemes. And a lot of coaches will say, well, hey, man, this thing that was called new in the 1980s, I, I saw guys doing that back in the 60s. So, so origin points are difficult. But I think one of, the, one of the really interesting jumping out off points is Bill Yeoman, uh, the former coach at the University of Houston, his offense in the mid-1960s. Bill Yeoman was one of the first coaches to implement the veer. And the veer was an option scheme whereby blockers – all blocked away from an unblocked defender. And that unblocked defender was read by the quarterback, who at that time was under center. In some of the Veer schemes of the day, the backfield was in a wishbone configuration where you had a fullback tucked in tightly towards the quarterback and then two offset tailbacks to the right and left uh, that formed you know, what obviously looked like a wishbone, thus deriving the name. And... The fullback would dive into a gap near the unblocked defender. And then the other backs would run some sort of configuration where one might become a lead blocker. The other might become a pitch man. You might have a cross scheme. But the whole idea was to to block the lineman back and away from the unblocked defender, but not by prescribing them a man, by pre- by prescribing them a gap, right? So if you were the right tackle, you blocked the left, the, the gap to your left. If you were the right guard, you blocked the gap to your left. Everybody gapped away from the unblocked defender. The QB read him and he either handed the ball to the fullback or he pulled it and he ran the option scheme based upon the reaction of that unblocked defender. That was really the first zone scheme. What those guys were doing in Bill Yeoman's veer offense, what the linemen were doing is that they were being ascribed an area and not a man. And in blocking that area, they really were doing what would later famously become known as the zone. And and so Yeoman's scheme, the Veer scheme, was all the rage in college football in the 1970s and 80s. When I first started watching football, some of my earliest memories are watching like the the Oklahoma wishbone uh, teams of the 1970s. You know, they had some great quarterbacks who were great Great wishbone uh, quarterbacks, J.C. Watts comes to mind, and and that was that was really zone blocking, even if it wasn't being called zone blocking. Now the NFL was slow to catch up. A lot of it's funny, man. A lot of the schemes that are popular in the NFL or become popular originate at the lower levels of college football, where sometimes scheming is is uh, more necessary in order to make up for some of the talent disparities that exist at the, that, those lower levels. Coaches get a lot more creative with their schemes. So the NFL in the 70s and 80s was still very power-based. I mean, teams were running gap schemes and man schemes. But, but slowly, the sophistication of defenses was making those schemes harder to sustain. Defenses were, were, were really starting to get active and creative, slanting, stunting, moving, gapping, you know, doing all these things that made it harder and harder and harder for offenses to be, to just block them in a man scheme or, or to get a, a double team on a down block. And increasingly, it became obvious that offensive line play would have to evolve in order to keep up with some of the changes that were being implemented by defenses. Which brings us to 1983, 
When a guy named Howard Mudd, right? Anybody who's listening to this show who really knows offensive line play will know the name Howard Mudd, a former offensive lineman who became an NFL coach. I mean, I, I can't think of a greater name for uh, an offensive lineman turned offensive line coach than Howard Mudd. But in 1983, Howard Mudd arrived in Cleveland to coach the offensive line under Browns coach Sam Ritigliano. And the Browns were not very good at the time, and their run game was struggling. And Ritigliano tasked Howard Mudd with rebuilding their run scheme. How, the power run game wasn't working for Cleveland. How can they re, rebuild it? And Mudd's philosophy, I'm going I'm to read from a book right now real quick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from uh, a couple of paragraphs out of Tim Layden's tremendous book, Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, which is was published probably about 10 years ago and, and really sort of gives the history of some of the schemes that have come to dominate the NFL over the years. He does a chapter on zone blocking, but he does chapters on things like, uh, you know, like the cover two defense or uh, the fire zone scheme or uh, the, the the West Coast offense, et cetera. If you want to learn about the history of the schemes of the NFL, this is an amazing read. Tim Layden's Blood, Sweat and Chalk. And so real quick, right? Some of the things uh, that he has to say about Howard Mudd after he arrived in Cleveland in 1983 to work with Sam Ritigliano. Layden writes, Mudd will not take credit for inventing the NFL version of zone blocking. He says the Seattle Seahawks, where he coached from 1978 through 1982 under Jack Patera, had been using a few zone blocking plays. That helped shape Mudd's thinking as he worked up his run game for the 1985 season. There was another influence too. When Mudd played for the 49ers, one of the team's running backs was John David Crow, the Heisman Trophy winner at Texas A&M in 1957. Mudd and Crow would later coach together with the San Diego Chargers in the mid-70s, and Mudd picked Crow's brain about how running backs find holes. Says Mudd, one day I said to John David, what do you look at when you're hitting the hole? I asked him because we were always telling running backs, look at the butt of the blocker you're following. So I wondered if that's what he actually did. And John said, I'll tell you what, I'm not looking at the blocker. I'm looking at that some bitch that's going to hurt me. Well, that really helped me because then I realized that running backs aren't watching offensive linemen. They're watching defenders. That's a big difference. For Mud, this signaled a change. Instead of assigning specific blockers to open specific holes, why not try to have the entire offensive line work as a flowing team, creating movement in the defense and letting the holes open up wherever they've op they open and letting the running backs see them? I was thinking, Mud said, let's cover up their color with our color and then encourage the ball carrier to run towards the defense and go where they aren't going. Hit them where they ain't, you could say. And that, from Tim Layden's book, is a really interesting look at how the zone scheme really kind of got started, right? Howard Mudd talking to a former NFL running back, a former Heisman Trophy winner, and really sort of, sort of rather than say, let's just approach this from the perspective of the, of the line, let's approach it from the perspective of the back. What does the back see? What is the back looking at? And what he realized was that backs aren't looking at the butts of, def of offensive linemen. They're looking at defenders, looking at the guys who are going to hit them. And from that, Mudd developed a philosophy. Let's create flow with the offensive line. Let's build double teams. Let's chip to the linebackers. And let's let the backs simply read the defenders and then find the hole. And to do that, 
you had to kind of remake all of your thinking. Running backs were really had been taught up to that point, hit the hole as fast and hard as you can because you're following an offensive lineman into the hole. But now instead, what Mud was doing was saying, hey, be patient. Be patient to the hole. Let the blocks get set up. Let the linemen create the flow. Everybody's going to block in the same direction. We're going to build a wall, on not, not too unlike the wedge, but everybody's going to, rather than stepping down inside, everybody's going to be moving in the same direction. The defense is going to flow when they see all those linemen move in that one direction. And then eventually linemen are going to chip off of, of down block or the, the first level blocks and come up to the second level to block linebackers. And when you see those linebackers commit, that's when you go. That's when you go. You're slow to the hole. You're fast through the hole. And that rethinking of blocking schemes from the perspective of running backs completely revolutionized the NFL. Now, the Browns had success with it very early on. That 85 team featured two really good running backs, Ernest Biner and Kevin Mack. They both ended up being 1,000-yard rushers for the Browns. The Browns went to the AFC Championship that game, lost it painfully to the Broncos in the famous uh, the famous uh, the drive game that many many may remember John Elway taking the Broncos 98 yards for the winning touchdown in the final minutes, but the rest of the league was watching right, and so the Browns had success with with what would then be called the inside zone scheme. One of their division rivals, the, the Cincinnati Bengals, their offensive line coach Jim McNally, who's become a legend in the coaching profession, he was watching man, he and he was taking notes, and he had. He had a, a different style of back. He had a quick running back named James Brooks, who he loved the idea of, of, of giving James Brooks options as to where to find the hole rather than say you're running to the B gap. Let James Brooks simply pick it. But Brooks wasn't as big uh, as Biner and Mack, and, and McNally wasn't certain that he could hold up running into the A gap and the B gap 200 times a year. So instead, he designed a wider version of the inside zone play, which famously became known as outside zone. And that, uh, that hit, that hit wider, that hit in the C gap or the gap between the tackle and the tight end. Or if the offensive line were able to pin the edge, it could go all the way outside like a sweep play. And, and so now there was an inside zone version and there was an outside zone version. And again, man, copycat, it's copycat league, right? And other teams were taking notice. And eventually an offensive line coach named Alex Gibbs, who is in, in, you know, some people consider him to be the father of the zone scheme, um, who was coaching with the Denver Broncos, Alex Gibbs caught on and he implemented those schemes in his Denver offense with a little wrinkle that's been controversial. Alex Gibbs also included something that was legal at the time, but is no longer legal cut blocks at the second level. He had his offensive linemen when they came off the double teams on the, on the first level, climb to the linebacker level and then chop down those linebackers, cut them. And that has since become illegal because it's a dangerous play, but it was incredibly effective at the time. And his running back Terrell Davis was an absolute perfect back to have in these schemes because Davis had great vision and quick burst and could square his shoulders and get vertical in a hurry. And the zone scheme as taught by Alex Gibbs to the Denver Broncos using Terrell Davis as their running back became one of the most prolific in the history of football. So now, right, teams are, again, man, there was inside zone under mud. There was outside zone under McNally. There was the hybrid scheme. Uh, there was the scheme that Gibbs taught today. There's a, there's another hybrid called duo, which I won't get into now, but utilizes zone principles. 
with an emphasis on double teams at the point of attack. I mean, gap games are still important, but the zone run game is so user-friendly because you can implement it against any front. It doesn't require uh, a certain front for which it can to, to excel. It can be used against any scheme. The rules remain the same. The back is taught the same principles. Heck, we it's it's my favorite run play in our offense at Ocean City High School where I, where I coach. This past year, I just finished a deep dive. Our season ended last week with a <laughs> excruciating, 23-22 playoff loss. And I just did a deep dive this past week on our offense, broke everything down, went through all our stats. We ran we ran zone schemes. 100, we ran 169 plays that included a zone scheme of some sort. And we ran them for 846 yards, which is an average of five yards per carry. If you can get five yards per carry running a certain scheme, well, guess what, man? Keep running it. And so we ran, we ran some kind of zone scheme 169 times for 846 yards. And that was our best run play, whether it was inside or outside zone or duo. Uh, and it again, man, it, it is it is really one of the staples, obviously, of modern NFL football. And when you watch an NFL game, you will see a ton of zone stuff. So I appreciate you, you, you know, taking that little history lesson with me, man. That 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 deep dive, and it all emanates from the fact that Terrell Davis wore number thirty and was one of the great zone backs in NFL history and really one of the pioneers of one of the most common schemes now in the game. All right, we're going to take a break. And on the other side, we will, we will get into some of uh, what's going on in the NFL over the first, uh, over the first uh, nine weeks and some midseason awards and some looks at where the, the season may be headed. So come on back. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you. Thank you for those of you who went down that road with me in the first part of the show and did a little history of the, the zone run scheme. And in the second part of the show, we're going to move the topic to something more current, right? The, the 2023 NFL season, in particular, the first half. And we're going to hand out some first half awards. We're halfway through the season, nine weeks done, nine weeks to go. And it's an appropriate time to look back and and maybe honor some teams and poke a little fun at some teams. When I think about awards and award shows, I always think about actors and actresses, Hollywood. You got the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes and those types of things. So we're going to hand out these awards named after some famous movie stars, right? So let's start with one of my all-time favorite actors. Let's start with the Matthew McConaughey Award. This is an award that will go to the team that, to quote, the, the quintessential McConaughey character, Wooderson from Dazed and Confused, right? One of his all-time great quotes is, I'm just living, L-I-V-I-N. All right, all right, all right. Everybody loves that quote, man. That's, the, that's probably the role that made Matthew McConaughey's career. 
but like Wooderson in in days to confuse, he wasn't going anywhere, man. He was the he was the twenty something dude still hanging around the high school kids, still hitting on the high school girls. And one thing I like about these high school girls, I get older, they stay the same age, which is creepy as heck if you think about it. And but I mean, he wasn't going anywhere, man. So so who? What's the NFL team that's just they're just not going anywhere? They seem to be content. And yet going nowhere. And for me, that's the L.A. Chargers, right? The L.A. Chargers are the Wooderson of the NFL. Just kind of chill, just kind of hanging around. People seem to like them, right? People people have, have good things to say about them. But at the end of the day, does anybody really respect them? Anybody respect the Chargers? Anybody impressed by the Chargers, right? The people who are really serious, the, you know, the people who have, have aspirations, do they look at the Chargers and say, hey, that's – that's a team that's really on the move. That's really going somewhere. Much like poor Wooderson from Dazed and Confused. People look at the Chargers and they go, when are they going to make something of themselves? So to the LA Chargers, right? You get the Matthew McConaughey Award for the fact that your complacency and your lack of ambition will, will frustrate all your fans, but that your cool helmets and your casual LA style will make you uh, imminently likable. All right, next, we got the Steve Buscemi Award. Steve Buscemi, another one of my favorite actors. A guy who is always good, always good. But, you know, in some regards, I mean, this is a little bit of an, a step up from the McConaughey Award, right? This is, a, this is a, an, an overachiever of a team, a team that no matter what role they seem to be in, always seems to produce, but also a team that inevitably seems to come up short, much like many of Steve Buscemi's characters, like the unforgettable Donnie in The Big Lebowski. Uh, they always, at the end of the day, man, they just don't quite get where you, where you want them to go, right? They're, they're a little bit short. They're a little bit uh, you know, picked on in some ways, never quite get there. And that, to me, is the Minnesota Vikings, right? The Kirk Cousins-led Minnesota Vikings, even though Kirk's out now with the Achilles injury. But the Vikings are, are they're always a good team. Um, whereas, the, whereas the Chargers are always a team that's like not as good as they should be or could be. The Vikings often seem to overachieve, just like they're doing this year, really clawing their way back from a terrible start to get back into the playoff picture. But you know, in, at the end, they're not going to be the Super Bowl representative from the NFC. They're not going to be able to overcome the Cousins injury. They'll probably be, be really good, like Steve Buscemi. But they won't land that leading role, man. Although, Vikings fans, if you think I'm being harsh right now on your team, I'm, I'm really not. I'm trying to compliment him, actually. We, we, we have to remember, Steve Buscemi did land the leading role in Boardwalk Empire. Uh, and he was really good in it, of course, as he always is. And so, who knows, man? Maybe, maybe the Vikings will land their leading role at some point and break that long, long Super Bowl drought of theirs. To the next one, let's, let's go with the Catherine Keener Award. So Catherine Keener is an actress who, who some of the younger fans may not know, but if you if you want to put the face with the name, she was she was Steve Carell's love interest in the Forty Year Old Virgin, where she was a phenomenal character, and she was awesome in the irreverent movie Being John Malkovich. Catherine Keener is somebody who always has done a lot with a little, right? She's never been a bombshell sort of quintessential Hollywood starlet. She's not the most attractive woman on, on film, but there's something imminently sexy and likable about Catherine Keener. She's doing a lot 
with what she's got. She makes herself incredibly appealing in the roles uh, for which she acts. And for me, man, that's the Houston Texans this year. You want to talk about a team that's doing a lot with a little. The Houston Texans may have one of the worst rosters in the NFL, and yet here they are, right, at 500 in the in the thick of the playoff mix in the in the highly competitive AFC doing an amazing job with rookie quarterback CJ Stroud who's having a phenomenal year last week Stroud threw for over 400 yards and five touchdowns first year head coach D'Amico Ryan's offense coordinator Bobby Slowick they've brought in some of the San Francisco 49ers philosophy they're moving the pocket they're using max protection to let Stroud be comfortable back there they're doing some really smart things and they're keeping that team relative and competitive and compelling, despite the fact that the, the roster itself is not loaded. So to the Texans, I give them the Katherine Keener Award. Let's go to the opposite end of that spectrum. Let, let's, let's talk about the Nicolas Cage Award. The Nicolas Cage Award, the award that goes to the team, in this instance, I'm going to talk about two teams, who were once great, were once stars and have just fallen into football oblivion, much like Nick Cage's career. I don't know the last time Nicolas Cage was relevant in Hollywood, but it's been a little bit of a of some time now, and, and he, he just seems to have, have bottomed out. And with that in mind, we must talk about the New York Giants and the New England Patriots, two e- extremely successful franchises, 10 Super Bowls between them, legendary players, great coaches, and right now both teams are just an absolute mess. The Giants, they're being quarterbacked by a guy named Tommy DeVito right now. I dare I dare anybody listening to pick Tommy DeVito out of a lineup. Uh, he's replacing Daniel Jones, who was lost for the season with a torn ACL. The Giants cannot protect the quarterback. Jones and DeVito collectively were sacked eight times in their game last week. The Giants look lost on offense. And that's, that's crazy when you think about the fact that Brian Dayball, their head coach, he was the coach of the year last year. And now, if this season doesn't get any better, he could be on the hot seat. It's amazing how quickly one's fortunes can change in the NFL. As for the Patriots, also 2-7. and seven. We don't need to give Bill Belichick's resume. Everybody understands, of course, what a great coach Belichick is. But Belichick's also 71, almost 72 years old. And it's quite possible that part of the problems in New England stem from the fact that Belichick just can't connect with or motivate players anymore. I mean, it happens, man. I don't think the scheme bypasses coaches. I think coaches, I mean, the stubborn ones, yeah, but but innovators and guys who are as in tune with the game as Belichick is. I mean, he's been he's been a relevant coach in the NFL for over 40 years, man. I mean, he's a guy who gets it. I don't think they lose the ability to X and O the game. I think, though, that as you get older, you lose your ability to connect with some of your players. I mean, Bill Belichick is old enough to be the grandfather of some of the guys on his team. And can he still connect with them in a way that resonates? Do they still view him as a guy who is, you know, a legend, right? I mean, the Patriots haven't been to the Super Bowl now in five years, and that's not a long time, but young guys have short memories. And I just wonder whether or not maybe the ship has sailed for Bill Belichick from that perspective. So anyway, the Nicholas Cage Award to the Giants and the Patriots. All right, let's talk about another of my favorite actors, Bill Murray, one of my absolute favorites. Everybody 
remembers Bill Murray from his blockbuster films like Ghostbusters and Stripes and Caddyshack, one of my all-time favorite movies, Caddyshack. Bill Murray was the classic leading man comedy actor of the 1980s, even into the 90s. But then Bill Murray took an interesting turn and remade himself as an actor. I think I think that turn started with the great movie Lost in Translation, where he kind of played the straight man. I mean, that was a comedy, but not a Bill Murray slapstick comedy. It was a it was a character study. And he's since gone on to make some really interesting straight man type movies like The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou and Moonrise Kingdom. I think Moonrise Kingdom was a tremendous movie in which Bill Murray almost played a pathetic, morose character. He did another one kind of in that same genre recently called St. Vincent, which wasn't as good. But so Bill Murray's really remade himself as an actor from a sort of slapstick, you know, get every laugh in the room uh, comedian into this sort of more serious straight man type comedy actor. And the Bill Murray Award is going to go to the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, you want to talk about a team that has really remade themselves. When we think about the Chiefs, we think about the high-flying offense, Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill when he was there, Nicole Hardeman when he was there, quick guys on the perimeter, them going up and down the field, scoring 35 points a game. That's not the Chiefs this year. The Chiefs are winning with defense. They're they're seven and two. They're still one of the best teams in the NFL, but they're doing it with defense. They've got the number two scoring defense in the NFL. They got the number four defense in the league in terms of uh, yards allowed. Their offense is down six points a game from last year. They're down a, a full touchdown a game, and yet they're still seven and two. They just last week held the high flying Dolphins offense to fourteen points. So. Kudos to Kansas City. If their offense regains its form and catches up with the defense, look out. That team could be phenomenal. Moving on. We just mentioned uh, the Dolphins. Let's give the Dolphins an award. I'm going to give them the Tim Burton Award. And the Tim Burton Award, uh, named after not an actor or an actress, but a, a director in this instance, Uh, And that director, Tim Burton, is one of the more interesting and unusual directors in recent Hollywood history, having directed fabulous but off-the-wall movies like Beetlejuice and The Nightmare Before Christmas and the classic Edward Scissorhands. That's got to go to the Miami Dolphins, and in particular, their director, Mike McDaniel, who is clearly, to me, the Tim Burton of NFL coaches. You don't know what the heck he's going to come up with. You don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, you got to watch, right? The Dolphins are kind of like must-watch TV just to look at what the offense is up to, whether it's sort of these no-look shovel passes that they're that they're running, which is really just for flair, or reinventing uh, pre-snap motions. I mean, it, Miami's exit motion is all all anybody could talk about in the NFL for a couple weeks there, where they where they motion their slot receiver not into the formation but towards the sidelines in order to get good matchups and create space in the middle of the field, or whether it's Miami finding five or six different ways to run the same play throughout a game and confounding defenses uh, in doing so. I mean, there's just a mad scientist element about Mike McDaniel and his offense right now that reminds me a little bit of how Tim Burton approaches his movie. So the Tim Burton Award to the Miami Dolphins. And let's finish up our little our little award show, our half-season award show here, by handing out the Keanu Reeves Award 
Keanu Reeves, man. I love Keanu Reeves, much like I love the team that I'm going to give this to. But I'm the fir- I will be the first to acknowledge Keanu Reeves, he's not a great actor. He's not a great actor. I mean, you look at some of the roles that he's played, right? The infamous Johnny Utah from Point Break. Uh, or, you know, the other quarterback who he played uh, in The Replacements. Uh, I mean, he's been in movies where, I mean, yeah, yeah, you know you like the movie. The movie's good. But at the same time, you're kind of aware that he's not a great actor, man. You know, like his acting is not exactly carrying the role. It's true of the John Wick movies. It's true of The Matrix. You know, you get these good plots, uh, that drive the the movie or you get these sort of like almost over the top Johnny Utah-esque characters that drive the movie, but it's surely not Keanu Reeves, the actor that is carrying the movie. He's a uh, mediocre actor who manages to make really good films. And for me, that's the Pittsburgh Steelers right now, right? The Pittsburgh Steelers, my favorite team are five and three. And Everybody in the football world seems to be talking about how bad they are. Oh, I can't believe the Steelers are five and three. They're terrible. Mike Greenberg recently called them the worst team in the NFL, the worst team in the NFL. And they're five and three. And if you want to like go back a little bit, they, they finished last year down the stretch by going seven and two over the last nine games. Add that up. That is, that's a full NFL season. That's 17 games. In the last 17 games, the Pittsburgh Steelers have gone 12 and five. Can you be a bad football team? And go 12 and 5 over 17 games in the NFL? I don't know. The statistics say yes, you can, because Pittsburgh is terrible statistically. Terrible. They're near the they're near, near the bottom of the NFL in almost every metric offensively. And defensively, they're mediocre at best in terms of most measurables. So the stats say yes, Pittsburgh's terrible. The eye test at times says Pittsburgh's terrible. You watch them for long stretches of the game struggle to even make a first down and you think to yourself how's this team good and yet in the end in the end they're winning they're winning 12 out of their last 17 games how are they doing it the defense is good enough to keep them in most games Mike Tomlin is a tremendous motivator and prepares his team to get them to believe no matter what circumstance they're in and then Kenny Pickett, their young quarterback, who, who doesn't fare well statistically, you, you probably don't want him as your fantasy quarterback, has more fourth-quarter comeback wins over the last two seasons than any quarterback in the NFL except for Kirk Cousins. Kenny Pickett, who Steelers fans have nicknamed Clutch Kenny, has been phenomenal down the stretch in games. And so the Steelers find ways against most teams to keep it close and then pull it out in the end. And for that, they're 12 and five over the last 17 games. They're a, they're a mediocre team at best, getting good results, aka Keanu Reeves. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The uh, the midseason awards that were we've handed out here on the call sheet, named after some of the more interesting actors in Hollywood. I hope I wasn't too harsh on your team if you found your team amongst that list. All right, we're going to wrap it up, man. We, we, we're hitting the second half. And, and as I said in, in the first segment of the show here, right, the leaves are falling off the trees. The weather's starting to get cold. Everything's going to change. It's been an unpredictable NFL season, and that makes for fascinating football ahead of us. So I hope everybody enjoys. We'll see you back here on the call sheet next week. Have a great week, everybody. 